Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tarones. All right, welcome everyone today to the Born to Write podcast. I'm so excited to have Srini Rao here. I was talking to him before the show, and I've been a big fan of his for a long time. And the book that he's sharing today and his story is so encouraging. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you know, we talked a little bit about this, that being in San Diego versus being in North County, how there's probably no real way our paths would have crossed unless somehow one of us went to the other's part of the town. But uh, I always felt like I could understand the perspective that you had because being in San Diego, being in a place where it's kind of perpetual sunshine can uh-huh. create, create an interesting place for a creative, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I came here. It's possible that we, we didn't even overlap because I just got here last year. Like I moved here at the beginning of 2017. But I think, you know, it's interesting to look at this in an environment to foster creativity because the big reason that I chose the, the location was specifically so that I could surf more because it, it you know, largely for the better part of the last eight, nine years, surfing has been sort of the fuel for all of my creativity. Sadly, since I've been here, the surf has been pretty awful, like so much so that I've had to basically travel abroad to catch good waves. I mean, you know, we've had good, you know, weeks here and there. But for being so close to the ocean, I'm kind of I'm shocked that I'm not in the water way more than I thought I was going to be. You right. know? Yeah, that's true. I, I lived in San Diego a long time. And the first time I actually got in the water was just recently in the, was in Portugal just because it was so <laughs> much work to get to the water where I was living in North yeah. Park. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about about the journey you got to this book, uh, mainly because I'm intrigued as a creative, how you, you decided you would keep plugging along on a message around creativity, because it seems to be your mantra. This, the book, An Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake, really mm. resonated with me. It really struck home. And it really actually struck some fear inside of me, like, oh, maybe I'm not a creative. Maybe I'm just a wannabe. <laughs> but tell me a little bit about the journey through creativity and why An Audience of One was such a special book. Yeah. So that will take us as, as quite some time. This may be a long-winded answer. So if you feel that I'm rambling, stop me, but... <laughs> oh, go for it. So I think that you know we have to go back to long before I started Unmistakable Creative or any of the things that I'm doing on the internet. So I went to college at a time when you know the sort of infrastructure for all of these tools was being built during the sort of first dot-com era, right? And that time, we had a lot of challenges if you're a creative person because of the fact that the tools, the technology, the resources, the distribution channels weren't what they are today. You know, if you wanted to build a, a very simple website, it took hours on end of coding. You know, sometimes it would take weeks. If you wanted a good website, you're talking months and, you know, potentially tens of thousands of dollars, which is also why so many web development agencies were actually started during that time period. But what happened between, you know, then and now was that the tools got a thousand times better. They got much easier to use. You know, I spoke with a woman who created a website called Ophoto, which was sort of the initial world of online photo sharing. You know, for people who are, are incredibly young listening to this or, you know, fresh out of college, early 20s, we didn't always share our photos on Facebook. In fact, just the idea of being able to view your photos online was a novel concept in right. 1999. You know, you would, I remember thinking, this is amazing. Like I basically sent in a roll of film and my, you know, pictures are then posted on this website where I can download them. There's another one called Snapfish that was eventually acquired by, I think, either Kodak or HP. 
But this was the very beginning. But to build those kinds of things were literally hundreds of millions of dollars of investment for infrastructure. And now most of those things could be built in a weekend, you know, for by a computer at his garage. So anyways, long story short, fast forward probably four or five years, YouTube comes out, Blogger comes out. And my sort of natural instinct when I saw technology, and keep in mind, I only recognized it, I recognized this in retrospect. I didn't see it at the time. But my sort of default, and it still plays out to this day in the way that I do my work, is when I see new something new, some form of new technology, my first instinct is, what could I make using this? Hmm. That is always the first question that comes to mind. It's never, how could I make money using this? Although that sometimes does cross my mind. But what could I make is really, I think, the first sort of filter that I run all new technology through. And if I find that I can make something that I enjoy making, I'll just make it. So perfect example, I designed uh, a new media kit for Unmistakable Creative. I found out about this company called Beautiful.ai, which makes the most amazing slide, you know, like I've never seen a slide development tool like this. And I was kind of like, okay, let me see what I, you know, their claim was you could develop, you know, you could build a beautiful presentation under 10 minutes. I was like, well, that's a bold claim. Yeah. And I was blown away by how amazing this thing turned out within 10 minutes of work. And I was like, I've been trying to create something that looks like this for months and I did it in 10 minutes. And so that instinct of, you know, let me see what I can make, I think carried me all the way to the point of, you know, if we fast forward to 2009, you know, was in business school. Keep in mind that also one other thread throughout this is that I had always been writing in some form or another, not, you know, on blogs, not consistently. But when I graduated from college, I wrote a 63 page single spaced autobiography about my four years in college. and I wrote it in eight days. And wow. what I realized was that there was something about this process of making things, of expressing myself that I found incredibly engaging. And that played itself out in virtually every single job that I ever had. Obviously, that's probably why I don't have any of those jobs, because they were sales jobs, not places where you're supposed (laughs) to go and make things. But, you know, fast forward to 2008, I just graduated. I was uh, between the first and second year of business school, and I got turned down for all the jobs that I wanted, and I got a job offered into it for the summer to be their social media intern. And at that time, social media was just starting to become much more relevant in our lives, enough so that now companies were paying attention to it. So, you know, so much so that they're like, okay, we need to hire a social media intern to, to focus on this thing. Now, that sort of thread, which I had mentioned to you of, okay, what can I do? You know, what can I make using this was basically what I spent my entire internship doing. And at the end of the summer, of course, for good reason, I didn't get a job offer because I didn't really do my job, you know, which was to be into its social media intern. By the way, it's incredibly hard to, you know, build a social media campaign or do anything social media related for something that people fucking hate, which is taxes. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, especially right. when you're in the middle of summer and it's not tax season. It's like, <laughs> how clever can you really get with this? Yeah. You know? Right. But I used that opportunity to learn as much as I could about, you know, the new tools and technology. I started a blog that summer that was just kind of nonsense. It was about my summer internship. And here's a funny story about that blog. I didn't get hired by Intuit, but many people who actually found that blog in pre, you know, following summers actually contacted me about my experience and they actually ended up getting not only, you know, hired to be an intern, but many of them got job offers. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, the irony of that is is just ludicrous to me. But my boss at the end of the summer called me and he said, "I'm we're not going to make an offer and, you know, we're doing you a huge favor." I I think he said you'll won't see it now. But I think in the future you will, because he said, this is the wrong job. And he's right. You know, it was mm-hmm. absolutely the wrong job for me. I'm, I'm, I thank God that I did not get that offer. But, you know, at the time it was really devastating because 
when you're an MBA student, that kind of is the, the sort of measure of your success of your internship is whether you got an offer at the end of the summer. And so I saw this as a, a massive failure, not realizing that it would actually be the, the it would plant the seed for everything that I would go on to do. So fast forward to the end of business school. I graduate April 2009. The absolute shit time to get out of school because right. nobody's hiring. You know, employers are getting thousands of resumes for one position. I mean, I heard stories about recruiters who would go to the printer at their office, print out resumes, take the first 500 off the top, throw them in the garbage, and then start looking through them. Wow. That's the situation we were in. I mean, it was just bad. It was a really bad time to graduate. Keep in mind, I also graduated Berkeley in December of 2000, also a terrible time to graduate right. from school. So you couldn't have planned luck this bad. You know? <laughs> You're talking, like, right. Who plans graduating into two recessions? So in a lot of ways, that was a blessing in disguise, both of those situations, because it kind of forced my hand to say, all right, well, like I really at this point have nothing. I've been fired from all my jobs. I don't really feel particularly employable. I had a job for about a year post business school. But during that time was when all of this started. And I started just laying the foundation for it. I took a, an online course about how to build a blog. That led to this weekly series called Interviews with Up and Coming Bloggers, which we subsequently spun out into a separate site called Blogcast FM. And after, I think, three years of running it as the podcast for bloggers, watching sort of what was happening in the podcast ecosystem, we knew that if we kept down this path, we wouldn't be in existence very long and that we had to change something. And of course, we didn't just change something, we changed everything. And that, I think, was really probably the more pivotal moment. You know, the, the most pivotal piece of this is, of course, that throughout this all, you know, since we're talking about writing, is that writing has been a, an integral part of my process, even though, you know, I will pretty much tell anybody I think that I'm a much better interviewer than I am a writer. And that that is actually why we started the podcast in the first place, because one of the guys I interviewed literally for more or less told me that he thought I was a much better interviewer than writer. And he thought that my writing wouldn't do well. But if I spun out the interviews into a separate site, it would. And he was one of my first phone calls when I got my book deal. <laughs> uh, it was like, I think, you know, like, but to this day, I, I still think I feel that, you know, the podcast is something that I create for an audience in the books, you know, despite the fact that they're written, you know, and, and published by a publisher, I, I, you know, a lot of ways do for myself. Right. You know, it's interesting that that path is sort of jumbled and not clear because creativity tends to be that way. And I think a lot of people who want to be writers or want to create something think that if I just sit down to do this thing, it will just appear. And a lot of times it is the, the struggle that happens before, after, during the art that makes it so incredible. And a totally. book is definitely like that. Like I remember specifically, I, 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 was, I went to UCLA and I, I got accepted undeclared because I applied to theater school, never have taken a theater class. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who would have known? I was like, that's why I'm coming to school. I don't know anything about this. They're like, no, I'm sorry, but we, <laughs> we think you're quite interesting, but we can't accept you to do the theater school, never taking a theater class, never. Right. Right. So that doesn't work out, but they accepted yeah. me undeclared. So the greatest thing about being accepted undeclared is I spent two and a half years taking whatever I wanted because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I wish I had done that, man. You know, like I tell people if I could go back to college, that is what I would do differently. I would be like Van Wilder if I went back to college now. I would join every club. I would basically be like, because I, 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 what I loved about that movie is like, what is Van Wilder doing at the Hillel house? It's like, well, I'm like, you know, you get to become friends with the Jewish people. I would have joined because we had friends who weren't Indian who were in the Indian student club. And I thought to myself, I'm like, I should have done that with every club. I would have had like, you know, United Colors of Benetton as my group of friends. Right. It's true that. It, so I had that experience because I was lost, not because I was mm -hmm. smart, but 
it yeah. ended up being the best thing. And sometimes not realizing those things until I got the letter from UCLA and I was almost going to be a junior. Like, if you don't declare, we have to kind of kick you out. <laughs> <laughs> so I just hunted for the major that accepted everything I took. Yeah. And I, I found a little obscure department within a department called yeah. World, World Arts and Cultural Theater. With, That's awesome. And basically nine of us graduated from that program that year. So that was how small it was. But it worked. It was so brilliant because I was like, oh, all of these things. So when I was taking Balinese dance and, you know, drumming and kabuki theater, my friends are like, what are you going to do with this? I was like, I have no idea, but this is the funnest thing ever. Like, yeah, you guys are cramming for finals. And I have no idea what bioengineering is, but I know that I'm not going to be that. So let me just. Yeah. You know, I, I feel that I missed out on the potential experience of Berkeley because I was so focused on, you know, what was put right in front of me. You know, one of the things you said inside was the book is that, you know, on your path to the the audience of one is that you had to kind of understand that there's a struggle, the struggle mm-hmm. of being a creative in this this age, that there's this idea that there's fame and fortune and validation and being accepted, it's a, that that's what creativity is, the result of it, and that you had to find your way through that. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, this is, the, I think, the, one of the great struggles of, of the world that we live in today, and it's a struggle that I, you know, wrestle with. I mean, the there is my, my ongoing joke is, did, did, you know, to don't people get the irony? Like, I always ask my literary agent, I was like, is it just me, or is the irony like not shocking to you that we write a book with a message, and now we're literally out doing everything <laughs> that is the antithesis of the message? You know, working hard to promote the book, you know, do it like because you know, you, obviously you don't write this thing and think, OK, I want it to exist in a vacuum. You want people to read it. You want it to sell copies. But the thing that is interesting, I think, is that right now what has happened is as a byproduct of the technology that we've created, the very technology that has facilitated sort of unparalleled levels of creativity has also inhibited it in some ways. And I think part of what inhibits, you know, sort of large volumes of work or work of depth is the fact that we can basically get attention in very short sort of almost soundbite-ish ways, you know, by posting a picture on Instagram or composing a status update or doing something very quick that gives you this sort of digital validation in the forms of likes or parts or whatever it is, right? And suddenly that becomes the measure of of the quality of the work when in all reality, that is absolutely irrelevant in so many ways. We've convinced ourselves of the relevance of having a social media presence or a personal brand. I I don't know if you saw it. I I put it out the the other day. It was a quote that Oprah had said said to Tom Brady when they were talking about this very thing that you and I are talking about. And I remember thinking, I, I saw that quote, I remember I wrote it down and I, I shared it on Facebook, but it was a really funny story because she said that what had happened was somebody had come to her, some 14-year-old girl, and had talked about building a brand. And she said, honey, like, what are you talking about building a brand? She's like, you've not done anything yet. The brand comes from the work that you do. <laughs> right. And I think that that is one of the, the great challenges of, of the, the world that we live in today is that there are a lot of things that can distract people from the quality of the work. And it's incredibly seductive because it feels like work. And part of the reason it feels like work is because these tools are designed to do exactly that. They're designed to be addictive. They're designed to be habit forming. But they're also designed to feel as if you're rewarded in some way for what you're doing. Like, I don't think anybody, imagine a Facebook with no notifications, no likes, nothing. What would be the, it would, you know, like it would be very bizarre. The feedback loops are, 
are what keep you coming back for more. And we, right. we can talk a little bit about that, you know, a little bit later in our chat. But so I, I think, you know, building unmistakable creative is really a perfect example of this notion of creativity for its own sake and, you know, creating for an audience of one. Now, people often will ask me, what are the criteria for how you choose people that you interview at Unmistakable Creative? And the answer is always, well, it's always based on what I'm curious about. Like that is literally the only filter is if the story makes me curious in some way, I want to tell it. And, you know, and so, you know, people say, okay, well now I got to go figure out, like, it's amusing to see if if people try to sort of, you know, extrapolate this into some sort of formula. And I was like, well, there's no formula for how you make me curious and you shouldn't try to make me curious. So I think, but that also came at a cost in 2014, 2000, you know, or, or 15, because at that time, one, we shifted from you know being a podcast for bloggers, largely focused on tactical stuff and practical information to suddenly being very story focused and almost you know pushing towards like an NPR style show without nearly the same production level or budget or producers and all that, yeah. but giving you know our, our sort of energy to, okay, that's the sandbox that we want to play in. And of course, the, the challenge with that is that you know, you're not niche enough to be, oh, we, we're just for entrepreneurs. That came with, with its own set of challenges, but the byproduct of it was something that was so beautiful, I couldn't fathom letting go of this. You know, we have parents who homeschool their children using content from Unmistakable Creative. We have yeah. therapists who counsel their patients using content from Unmistakable Creative. Coaches who basically share their content. And you know, even I've had friends who teach lectures in college classes who use the Unmistakable Creative as part of their curriculum. And that to me was one of those things that I knew if we changed the style of the content, we would lose that. And I wasn't willing to lose that. And in the short run, it meant, okay, yeah, some of the, you know, other podcasts that focus specifically on entrepreneurs are probably going to be more popular because they're more niche and all this stuff. And, you know, so we paid a short term cost for that. But I think the, in my mind, what I was going for, in addition to you know, something that I would enjoy, something that would make me happy, which is, is, you know, I like, I choose the people I want to talk to because I want to talk to them. Like the fact that the audience enjoys it is a fringe benefit as far as I'm going. <laughs> That's so you know? true. I was telling uh, my partner, Steve, that we, you know, we've been married for almost three years. And, and for me, he knows I get down this rabbit path and I love this podcast so much, but I always forget that I'm supposed to share it. Because it's really for me, like this conversation ultimately feels like it's for me and I'm glad people listen yeah. in. And I think that's the creative part that's like that really gets you to show up. And you mentioned something in your, your book that if authors are thinking about reviews and bestsellers list and all that diminishes or changes the quality of their work. So the funny thing is that like sentiment, that's a one version of something that I have been told literally over and over again until it was kind of finally, you know, it cemented in my head. So funny enough, that is a version of one of the very first things I got told at the job that I didn't get hired for at Intuit. Hmm. I remember there was a, a lunch and learn and there was a woman who was a senior executive and I was a really different person. Like my entire world, like it, which probably is hard to imagine if you're familiar with my work at all, but my whole world was driven by this notion of, of climbing the corporate ladder and getting a good job and you know, like I wanted to be, you know, like I wanted to be sort of the go-to guy, like a big company, which is funny because probably now I'd be much more likely to be able to do that given what I I know how to do. (laughs) Right. But the thing that she said to me that didn't, you know, like it didn't strike, it didn't hit home then. It's taken 10 years for me to realize how true what she said was, was I asked her, how do you get ahead? And her answer was presence. And the thing that 
happens for so many people is that they are thinking about anything but the work. It's like, oh, how is this going to be perceived? And I'm as guilty of it as anybody, right? Like, I mean, there are moments when I'm writing something and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, if I share this on Facebook, what are people going to respond like? Well, this seems like one of those things that would get a ton of likes. I think I'm going to put it up. That goes through my mind. And and sometimes I use that specifically just to test ideas to see if there's any resonance and like, all right, cool, scrap this. But I think that, you know, there's a certain point at which you have to really focus on the work itself because that is where like you go from, you know, sort of meaning to mastery. I mean, that to me, you know, people don't know this, but I, I go back and I listen to every interview that I've done. And it's weird because I don't listen to podcasts in general. Like it's not, it's ironically not my preferred form of media consumption, <laughs> partially because it's, it's, it takes too much attention in my mind. And, you know, like I prefer reading books. Like it's just a better, for me, that's, uh, it's weird because that's how I process information, I think, which is probably why I didn't do well in college because audio is not my best way of processing information. Reading material is, uh, it turns mm-hmm. out. And so I think that once you get to this point of, craft, there's a sort of different joy that comes from it, right? It like looking, going and looking back at things and saying, oh, wow, that like from both sides, right? Like you listen to something, you're like, oh, I should have asked a different question there. Or I missed a thread that I could have taken further there. Or even moments where you're like, wow, like there are other moments when I'm thinking to myself, shit, I shouldn't have asked, I, I'm thinking to myself, I should have asked this question. And the next thing I know, I hear myself ask that question that I thought I should have asked. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, okay, never mind. I did do that. Right. Oh, I was uh, in flow. Okay. Yeah. So, well, and that, that, you know, you just brought up flow. And to me, like, there's nothing greater than that. Like the feeling of being completely in the zone, focused on this one thing to the point where it completely absorbs you and, you know, engages you and the rest of the world ceases to exist. There is nothing that tops that. I hate being finished with a book for this very reason. Mm -hmm. Like, because now I don't have that, you know, there's this void where there was that every single day. And I think that, you know, what I'm, what the real thing I'm I'm hoping to get people to understand is that not only do you get a great deal of joy from that part of this, right? Is it, it frees you from this fear of, oh, downloads, book reviews, all the things that we think about, you know, as creatives about how our work will be judged, how our work will be received. And the, here's the craziest part, right? Think about how much energy we put into things that we have absolutely no control over. Right. You know, there's this, you know, there are very few things when it comes to how an audience responds to a piece of work that you have any control over. And yet the amount of energy that we put into the things that we have no control over is so out of balance in comparison to the things that we do have control over. Like there's this, you know, sort of this argument goes around Twitter every now and then it's always amusing because it's like, I feel like it's always between the same three people, <laughs> or at least when I've seen it and they have wildly different views on it. I think it's like Derek Halpern, Pat Flynn and Ryan Holiday, if I remember correctly, I had this Twitter thread, but you know, there's this argument of, oh, you need to spend X percent of time promoting the work and X amount of time creating it. And I tend to fall in the Ryan Holiday camp. I think that the more time that you focus on creating it, the more likely it is to spread, the more likely it is to be promoted the more likely it is to stand the test of time. And, and that is another thing I think when, you know, thinking about this audience of one concept, the other thing that I really started to aim for with the conversations I'm having, because, you know, in the, in the days when we were the podcast for bloggers, our content was very relevant to what was going on on the social web. And I knew that I didn't want to tell these kinds of stories. Like I, I was, I knew because what was starting to happen was that we were finding people who weren't bloggers or people who had blogs, but you wouldn't refer to them as bloggers. Their stories were just interesting. And their interviews were 
thousand times better than everybody else's interviews, like so much better that we realized we're like, this is actually how the show should run. And what really I think my mentor Greg had the foresight to see was that he said, you can get those stories out of everybody. He said, it's just a matter of the questions that you ask because he said, everybody has those stories. And so there was a combination of one telling the types of stories that I wanted to tell and two attempting to create something timeless because I think we could air something and we do it every Friday, but we can take something that we published three or four years ago. We can republish it today and it will still be relevant Right. because we did not aim to create something that was only relevant for a particular time period. So you'll, you know, like when people come to me and try to pitch me on, oh, I've increased traffic to a website or I built a Facebook fan base. I'm like, yeah, this is so not an unmistakable creative story. So no. Yeah. Like, no, that's uh, such a great point. Relevancy. And I think you mentioned this a couple that you mentioned people that are timeless. You mentioned David Bowie quite a few times in the book. Yeah. And I think because he was creating for himself, mm-hmm. his music, his, his persona really has lasted yeah. time because it is timeless. It almost was futuristic when he was doing it. So it, it felt like he wasn't even supposed to be creating it at that time. But I think yeah. that that sense of creating for the sake of making something worth doing is the reason why a lot of people miss it. it a lot of the best-selling books are the best marketed books, but that doesn't yeah. mean they're the best books. And I think people want to worry about that. Yeah. It, I mean, a lot of people don't know that, you know, Ryan Holiday's first book didn't do that well. His second book, Obstacle is the Way, didn't do well until almost two years after it came out. It stood the test of time. And he has said very openly, even in his, his other book, Perennial Seller, that I, you know, like I set out with the aim of, of longevity. And I think that very few people these days do that because of the fact that they can get attention quickly. And that to me is, is I think that, you know, you're kind of playing in dangerous waters at that point. Like I am working on this new piece that was somewhat inspired by Ryan's book, but I think the, the greatest possible insurance policy you could have on a creative career is to attempt to make something timeless. Absolutely. As someone had asked me how my, how my Ted talk had so many views and I invited a bunch of people on to like a webinar. Like, I'll tell you, I'm, I don't have like, it's not going to cost you. I'm not charging you necessarily. If you want to talk to me about this, there were several people who had to talks and they wanted to know what was the hack I use. And I said, mm. that's exactly the problem. You were looking for a hack. I said, remember, it's <laughs> their ideas worth spreading. And that's the problem. It's not that you, know, you funny. hack you just your way. Given- You've given me more fodder for the blog post. I think that now I'm going to add this one, one more heading and write about this. If we get done, there are no hacks to creating timeless work. No, perfect. Yeah, you should, because that's the thing is it wasn't that it was good. It wasn't that it was even well delivered. It was that yeah. the message was amplified by the clear sense of the message. And it wasn't me. It's just some message I, I noticed. It's something I noticed and I wondered about. And other people wondered about it too, not because I've, I'm using it to grow my X platform. And that's the thing that I think authors can get caught up on is thinking that if I write this book or even worse, if I don't write this book, what mm-hmm. might happen? I think more authors get stuck with these things in their head and then never write the book. You know, I, I think that that's a good point. And I think that like, so I, I had, it was interesting because I, I'm really kind of late in terms of getting to the party as far as getting to be an author. At least I think so compared to a lot of the people like, you know, when I was interviewing people, you got to remember it, like this started in 2009 for me. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, to, I, and it was every year it was like, oh, I'm interviewing people who get book deals and, you know, one after another, one after another. And I was in a position where probably could I have gotten a book deal 
Yeah. I mean, I was seeing friends get book deals, people who didn't have necessarily big platforms with publishers that, you know, we won't name those publishers just for the sake of respecting them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like when I heard kind of how it all played out, I was like, well, that sounds shitty. Why would I, I go through that process? I mean, I was really I mean, I was fortunate that my self-published book did really well, thanks to, to Glenn Beck. And then Penguin came along. And what I realized, and even in that process, I had a few opportunities to talk to people. I was in the midst of a conversation with another publisher when my editor at Penguin emailed me. And I knew I was like, okay, this is clearly. And I remember putting it on Facebook that an editor at Penguin just contacted me about writing a book. And the editor from the previous publisher sent me an email immediately. And she said, go with Penguin. She's like, they're going to be much better for your career than what I can do for you. And the division that she was in folded, the previous editor. But the thing that I, mm. I think we, we have to be, this is an important subject because I think often people get it in their head that, oh, I want to be published just for the sake of being published. And there's a sort of vanity to it. And I've watched this happen with people. Mm-hmm. And you forget that, by the way, like this may be a one shot deal. Make sure it's something that you want to create, not just something that a publisher is saying, you know, we'll back it if you do it, because you're going to be the one that's stuck with this thing for the rest of your life. You're the one who is going to have your name on it. And that I think was it was funny. I think it was, you know, a great gift from the universe that and it was I think it was telling I, I could not figure out an angle that would work with the publisher that I was talking to. And what's funny with Penguin, the so the funny thing is I didn't even have an outline. (laughs) We had no idea. All I was told was we want you to write a book. It was funny because the original reason they were interested was because they wanted me to write audience of one. But it ended up being a two book deal instead because they're like, well, it doesn't make sense to combine these two books. So instead, you know, how do you feel about a two book deal? Well, I was like, yeah, but ultimately (laughs) the point is that, you know, I think people really need to consider that it has to be something that they want to do that lights them up because you have to remember that even if you get to write a book with a publisher, you're going to spend the better part of like two years, like immersed in this thing every day. And if it's not something that you're genuinely interested in, it's going to be way harder. Yeah. I think that's the thing is people who want to write a book have to be committed to it. And you know, the marketing too. I, I, I hate to tell you that you're as great as your publishers are, you're going to have to carry a lot of this work. You have to carry oh, about yeah. it way more than they do. If they care about it more than you, it's not going to make it. It's your message. It's your calling to the world, whatever you want to call it. It's got to be f- there for you. And I also know I, I was interviewing David uh, Academy and he was telling me that he, his book just exploded, became like the top 100 on Amazon. And then he sort of was frozen because he thought, how am I ever going to top that? Like your first book does crazy well. And then you that have- is the worst feeling. And in- it's funny because it's simultaneously the best and worst feeling in the world. Right. Yeah. You because know? you realize that, wow. And you know, like, I mean, my self-published book, which by the way, is not very well written, you know, <laughs> like it's riddled with typos. You know, it was assembled somewhat sloppy. Luckily, you know, the cover is amazing because Mars Dorian did it. But beyond that, you know, like my second book is a thousand times better right. yeah, in terms of writing quality. It's clear that I've evolved, but it didn't sell. It hasn't sold anywhere as near as many copies. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're right. Like the moment you experience that, you're just, there's a feeling of how am I ever going to top? This is really, it, it, it's it, like I said, it, it's a, it's a combination of, of, you know, the best and worst feeling in the world at the same time. Yeah. And it's the presumption of it. Dan Rohn, who is the uh, New York times, uh, bestselling author of back of the napkin. Basically, it talks about how to communicate really complex ideas with visuals. It's a great book. 
uh, we met at a conference that uh, totally unrelated to authorship. And he was just chatting. He's like, hey, so what do you do? And I was like, at the time, I was just a teacher. I'm like, well, I'm a teacher. And he's like, oh, cool. I go, but I'm really, I would like to write a book. Your, your talk was inspiring. And he says, what is your book about? So I told him my book idea. And he's like, that would be a best-selling book. Let me introduce you to my agent. And I was like frozen. And Srini, I have not finished that book yet. And that was <laughs> years ago. And it's because wow. of that. It's not because... I'm proud of that. I just want to be open and honest with my community who listens to me is that it can create a, a sense of expectation that's not real. It was never real to begin with. He has yeah. no idea if it's going to be, you know, best learned. That has nothing to do well, with him. I mean, imagine, you know, being in my position, I got my book deal because my self-published book was successful. Right. You know, like the assumption that, oh, you could make this happen again. I mean, like that is, is really, I think the, yeah, it's not an easy thing to wrestle with for sure. So how do you feel like knowing that your other book, you know, even that was published traditionally, isn't outselling the first book or hasn't? What keeps you going to working with a traditional publisher? What's your sense of commitment to it? And why do you want to well, keep doing it? I think that, so let me sort of, well, you know, I mean, so your, your audience may know some of this because, you know, you're, you're a podcast for writers, but there are a lot of things that you could do on your own today that you know, like a publisher does for you, you could design your own book covers, you could get your own printers, you could, you know, you could do all of this. But I think there's a part of this, I mean, and you could even hire editors as well as copy editors, you could literally reconstruct the team inside a publisher on your own without ever talking to a publisher. But we're still in this really bizarre phase. And I don't know that we've quite crossed this yet, where at the end of the day, a traditional publisher staking you is still a major credibility marker. And, you know, it's funny. Mark Manson wrote that book, which God knows how many copies it's sold by now. But and it was funny because he he had no reason, no need to do a traditionally published book. I mean, he had a big ass audience. He could have easily wrote that without ever doing the book with a publisher. I think that the process of writing a book with a publisher is one of the most formative personal growth experiences that you could have as a writer because of the fact that you are held to a whole other standard, at least at portfolio. I don't mm -hmm. know how it is in other places, but given the other thing is because it was Penguin Portfolio, I mean, you look at the authors that came out of there, it was like Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, Pamela Slim, Jonathan Fields, all people, Ryan Holiday, all people who I have a profound amount of respect for, all people whose work I'd always thought, you know, like these are careers that are ones that I want to model. They don't look, you know, uh, you know, there, there are other publishers who publish the sort of, you know, dummies books or even like a book about some particular thing and, and you know, subject. And I was like, I'm not going to like, you know, these people have some of them make money, but they don't have the career that I wanted. And I looked at, you know, sort of who came out of this imprint. But the process itself I think transformed me into a very different person even than I was before I went through this process. Because when you write a book with a publisher, so when you're self-published or even when you're writing blog posts, there's this sort of free reign to do whatever the hell you want, right? Mm -hmm. I can write about one thing today and tomorrow if I choose to, I could write about politics in America, which we won't get into because that will take five hours for us. <laughs> right. But the thing is you could do that in a blog post, whereas with a book, you have to take one theme and you have to be able to literally expand on that theme for 150 to 200 pages and make a compelling argument that supports it. Now, you know, there's the argument that, you know, a lot of these sort of prescriptive nonfiction books, which, you know, mine absolutely qualifies as is, is that that tendency of, of a formula of, oh, you know, you tell a story, you back it up with some points, you tell a story, you back it up with some points. But I think that there is value in that because you actually learn how to research, you learn how to make arguments that are compelling. I think that when you haven't gone through this process, it's easy to make arguments with nothing to back them up. And that is probably the biggest benefit that's come from this because 
even if you read my writing on medium today, you'll see that if I make an assertion, I will back it up with, you know, four different things to support what I've just said. Right. And I learned that as a byproduct of doing it, you know, going through this process. I was really fortunate in that Penguin's, you know, offer to me was contingent on me working with a writing coach. They basically said, we're not concerned about your ability to finish a book. We're concerned about your ability to structure ideas in a linear fashion. And I said, that's fine. That's a valid concern because had I had the ability to, if I was good at structuring things in a linear fashion, I would have already written a book proposal and I never did. So that is one of those things that I think is still, still valuable. And even, you know, from a, a public speaking standpoint, I started getting paid speaking engagements and having even speakers bureaus want to talk to me only after a traditionally published book came out. The other thing is, I don't think I could have given the kind of keynotes that I, the keynotes that I do now without sort of having this experience because it forced me to really understand my topic at a level of depth that I, I didn't have to before. Right. You know, you mentioned in your book that passion emerges from this notion of sticking with something long yeah. enough till it becomes something you're skilled at, you, you're gifted at. It's a daily process. Writing, creating art, painting, or surfing is a stick to it sort of process. What, mm -hmm. How do you feel for people who who don't get that sense when they're writing, that they're, that they don't feel that they're coming to the point of passion when they're trying to do their art, whether it's writing or painting or something else. Sure. So the thing that, you know, we, we underestimate, like I said, very small point, seemingly pointless acts of creativity and consistency is one of those things that also is incredibly underrated. Like I didn't find, you know, it wasn't like I was passionate about interviewing. The other thing that we don't pay attention to is what actually engages us. Now, the thing with what you're talking about is, you know, paying attention to what engages you is, is an interesting, you know, sort of mental model for how we deal with this. But the thing is, these days, people have such short attention spans that for them to find the process of even doing something like writing for 10 minutes is incredibly challenging because, you know, they immediately get bored. They immediately want to, to cave into other, some sort of other stimulus. But I, I think that really, in my mind, is start as small as you can. You know, what we call minimum viable actions, I think, in the book is what we refer them to. So, you know, people come and tell me they want to develop a daily writing habit or they want to write a thousand words. I'm like, okay, we'll start with one sentence. The one sentence is, is totally, you know, not unrealistic. You write more than a, a sentence every day anyways, you know, with all your status updates. So like just, you know, instead of writing them as status updates, write those two or three sentences in a notebook and see what happens. And it builds on, you know, one little thing on top of another, you know, People don't remember that like Unmistakable Creative literally was, you know, a 20 minute conversation with another blogger, an MP3 file recorded and uploaded to WordPress with some bullet points. I mean, there was nothing sophisticated about how all this started. And like that to me is, is really, you know, kind of the approach as finding engaging and, and getting to the point of passion. And yes, you do have to stick with something long enough before it starts to produce results. The other thing is that here's another way to think about this is sometimes you won't actually find something engaging until you've given it enough time to get to that point. Like it takes time to find something engaging. Even on a day-to-day -day basis, it takes time to find something engaging. Like I don't sit down every day and, you know, I'm like suddenly inspired to write. Half the reason I have to do all this stuff is because I face these challenges the same way that everybody else does, like even probably more so because of how ADD I tend to be. Like I have to use these tools and these, you know, ideas largely for that reason. But I think that we don't have enough of a tolerance for boredom anymore. Like, yeah. do you remember, I, I don't know how, how old you are, but like there was a time when 
you know, you tell your parents you were bored. It wouldn't be like, go look at the iPhone. Like, well, shut up and go outside. <laughs> yeah, you know? Right. Like nobody ever told, you know, when dad was like, well, that's great. Go do something. You know, like yeah. that's not like parents didn't feel this obligation to like quench your boredom. It was just like, well, tough shit. That's, that's your problem. Yeah. yeah. You know? go, go play outside. And you would play by yourself and make up games. Yeah. Games. I think games i mean like the dumbest things imaginable but you somehow you know found a way to entertain yourself and now like we don't have the capacity what we forget I, I what we don't realize often is it's in those sort of liminal spaces that seem like boredom that often are literally the precursor to great creative work and insight right yeah you know it like i think i said this somewhere in the book that's why it takes a basketball player you know 10 good shots before he's in the zone a writer a thousand words a surfer a few good waves because you have to do this thing repeatedly before it starts to feel engaging. Like if you're not good at something initially and you expect to sit down and find that thing engaging, it's not going to be. But the upside is that you have the opportunity to get better. I think this is you know something I, I need to give credit where credit is due, but I, I think this is really the way to sum this up is, you know, James Clear had said something to me in an interview. He said, reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. Mm. So that, you know, I think anybody yeah. can do. And and that's why I always encourage people to start with the smallest possible thing that they can do right. and build your way up. You know, like I didn't start out writing, you know, these behemoth pieces or, you know, like long books. It was a thousand words a day, 1500, 2000. And, you know, keep pushing it. it like you build it as a muscle and eventually it gets engaging. Interviewing was one of those things that I took to fairly quickly mainly because I just, I liked the conversations I was having and it, it kept, you know, allowing me to meet new people. Yeah. You mentioned something interesting that's, that kind of struck me that I wasn't expecting in the book about creativity and cutting loose relationships from toxic people. And when is the time you had to do that? And you're like, like because oh, it was blocking your creative time I haven't. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, I think this is important for people who are being creative to know that, that yeah. those people, I call them those vampires will show up and try to suck the life out of you. Once you start trying to show them you're going to do something worth talking about, they want yeah. to tell you why it's not good. But tell me about what you meant in the book. So, you know, I think that we really underestimate the impact of the people in our lives. We really do. Even if those people are close to us or their friends or even family members, we underestimate the impact of the people that we're friends with on Facebook and the people who follow us on Twitter. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this, you know, to, to frame this. Sometime, I think, you know, in 2015, I'd just gotten my book deal. I was still living at my parents' house and I'd written a post on LinkedIn. And one of these guys who had been a, a listener kind of on and off and would comment on my, my work every now and then, he had a habit of, of leaving really kind of weird, strange comments, so much so that my mom would say, you really need to get rid of this guy from your community. Like that's, <laughs> you know, like if your own mom is saying, who the hell is this guy? Like that you should, you know, recognize. Anyways, he... Like, so he made some comment about, you know, asking me whether I was financially independent. And I was like, well, this is not your business. So I'm like, why would I need to share this with you on, in public? If I choose not to share it, so be it. You know, like I'm not one of those people who shares income reports. I don't talk about the size of my advance. Like I, it's not anybody's business, right. right? That's the way I see it. Like I'm mean, Pat Flynn's business is built on teaching people that. So it makes sense. Mine right. is not. Anyways, this guy emailed me and said, Hey man, if you're still living at home, better, you know, probably to just work on yourself before you make it your mission to help other people. And I was, you know, I mean, I was, I was livid, but at the same time, you know, like I was kind of like, okay, what there, there are nu numerous ways. Cause I blocked him on LinkedIn and I blocked him on Twitter. And, you know, I remember I replied back and I said, you know, man, I'm like, really, I don't need to tell you this, but I just got a, a book deal with a publisher. So, you know, like, but I don't feel the need to broadcast this to the world constantly. So 
anyways, after that, I blocked him from every social network that he was on. I marked all his emails as spam and I've never heard from him again because he probably can't get in touch with me. Right. I don't feel in any way at all that my life is worse because that guy is no longer part of it. But the thing is that, you know, we all have, even if you look at sort of your Facebook friend list, the really easy filter is, okay, when I see this person, how does it make me feel? And, you know, I mean, there, there are partners that I've had to part ways with because we weren't seeing eye to eye anymore. We had different visions for where things needed to go there. Like the thing is that you don't understand how much toxic relationships just weigh on you. They're a huge weight on everything that you do. And they, they stifle creativity in so many ways. I think the funniest sort of, you know, version of this I heard was from Dan Kennedy, which, you know, he'd mentioned in a book. I think it was either no BS wealth attraction or in one of his seminars. He says, you know, if I woke up three mornings in a row and I'm thinking about you because you're bothering me and we're not having sex, you've got to go. <laughs> that was his rule for vendors. Okay. And I, like to me, that was such a, a sort of appropriate example. Like the amount of thing bullshit that we put up with from other people who we don't feel, you know, add to the quality of our lives simply because not because we want to simply because it's the default setting. Like how many of the people that you're friends with on Facebook are deliberate choices, you know, right. Whose feed is going through like, you know, is your newsfeed a deliberately curated choice? Because if it is, you will see a huge difference in the way you think about the world, the way you interact with people, all of it. Like, so there is no question in my mind that the quality of your relationships and the people in your life have a huge impact on your creative capacity. Because another, I'll give you one more example. I was a couple of years out of college and I had these two friends who were, I mean, they're masterful at just finding negativity in every situation. It was, I mean, it was exhausting to hang out with them. Like yeah. you'd get a new job, they'd tell you why it wouldn't last. You'd meet a new girl, they'd tell you why you were, you know, it wasn't going to work out. And it was like, I'm like, okay. After a certain point, I was like, you know what? I'm like, we don't need to be friends. Like you guys are jackasses. And <laughs> I don't feel that my life is any worse because I'm not friends with those guys. So, you know, I think we, so, you know, when I say cut toxic ties, I'm not just talking about like ending friendships with no explanation, but like, think about the people that are in your life. You know, like I said, if you look at your Facebook friends and you're like, okay, this person, honestly, I'm not a big fan of them. Like, why am I friends with this person? Just because of a default setting? Just because Facebook calls them friends? <laughs> yeah. or, or, you know, like, here's the thing is, you know, we spent a lot of time in this book talking about environments, but if your environment is nothing but a representation of your past, your future is going to look a lot like your past. Right. You know, there's this, and you asked me how old I was. I, I'm, I'll be 49. So as you get older, you decide to separate yourself from friends or environments or even careers. It's intrinsically more thought provoking to build new relationships. I try to employ kindergarten rules where I walk up to somebody who do you want to be my best friend and walk, you know, hand in hand and go to the swing set. But that doesn't always work because I'm more cautious. I'm more willing to say, I can see how you're behaving and I know where this might go. I, I want people in my life that, that if I had to call at two in the morning, they'll show up. And it's not because we've known each other for 40 years. It's because we value each other. We value what we bring to the table. And that's a little bit more difficult, but it also makes me think differently uh, around the people I associate myself or who I even follow on social media. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. This has been an incredible interview. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Where would people find more about you? And definitely we're going to share the uh, link for an audience of one, but tell us more where you want us to, to follow you and learn about. Yeah. What you're doing. Uh, well, you can find the unmistakable creative podcast 
pretty much in a- anywhere where you can find podcasts, uh, iTunes, Stitcher, all that stuff. Uh, the book is available on Amazon or anywhere else that they sell books. And, uh, you know, we put together some really cool pre-order bonuses and stuff, but, uh, the other place you can find everything I do is at unmistakablecreative.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been thrilling. I realized we could have been talking for another hour and I was like, Oh, absolutely. I'd be thoughtful, but thank you for coming on the show. Oh yeah. My pleasure, man. Thank you so much for having me. Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast. Leave an honest review, and you can always find me at coachazul.com.